0: Well, good morning, good Shepherd. Uh, as always, it's good to be with you uh, this morning. We're going to continue our series on the news media, and we've, in order to get to talking about the news media, we've taken some time to uh, investigate uh, Revelation 12, 13, and 14, and uh, we've been sort of s- setting the setting the table, if you will, to talk about the media. And today we're gonna we're gonna move toward there, but we're still gonna. Talk about background matters that are, that are really foundational, that are, uh, that are uh, prerequisite, if you will, necessary for talking about uh, the media. As we've talked about these last few weeks, Revelation chapters 12 through 14 portray a deeper conflict, a deeper conflict. It's been uh, described by John as a war between life, abundant life, true life, symbolized in a woman, a woman who is emitting light, who is robed in light, who is a source of light, a source of purity in the world of darkness. A woman who is giving birth to a child, so she's a source of life, a uh, life in the sense of, um, of, of being willing to give uh, true life at a great cost in the midst of great pain and sacrifice. So this conflict is a war between life, symbolized in a woman, and lies symbolized in a dragon or in a a serpent a serpent of course being symbolic of that which is deceptive is um is false or counterfeit it's a war as we saw in chapter 12 ultimately or decisively won by the blood of the lamb and it's a war in which the dragon uh, while being defeated is still deceiving and it's, it's really, that's where we pick up the story in chapter 13 of today. In this next scene, if you will, we learn how it is that the dragon goes about its campaign of deception. That is to say, he does so in two related ways. This is, this is very important. He hijacks the institutions of government and media. This could not be more relevant Let's see. So let me just talk. Let me talk about that idea of hijacking. Probably the example of hijacking that is that is most part of the American consciousness is uh, the hijackings of, of 9-11. Uh, you recall that four passenger airliners were hijacked by uh, nineteen or twenty Al Qaeda terrorists. Um, see now that the idea of hijacking is that is is the idea of taking or of course taking by force something that is good and using it for evil of course an airliner is essentially a flying bus but on 9 11 it was turned into a fiery bullet right a web was weaponized in a way that took cost the lives of, of thousands an instrument and so an instrument of transportation was was changed or was altered was mutated into an instrument of terror. So again, this idea of hijacking is, is very important. The dragon here is going in its in its war, in its campaign of deception is going to take something good, something God created, something instituted by God, as in government and various cultural forms of communication that we today call media, and he's going to use it for evil to carry out his campaign of lies. And so it's important to see here that Revelation isn't vilifying cultural cultural institutions like government or media. It's not saying, oh, they're they're necessarily satanic or they're evil in and of themselves. Okay. It's, and furthermore, Revelation isn't demonizing or vilifying specific persons within the government or within media. But we're, as we're going to see, but what what, what uh, Revelation is saying is that these very institutions are regularly hijacked to promote an agenda of deception in a war against all who would promote life. Again, a war against all who would seek to live like the lamb, to live lives of costly, loving, humble obedience. Today, so today we're going to look at how the evil one hijacks political, political power. Next week, we'll get to kind of where we've been wanting to go to talk about the media. So hear now the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. <clears throat> the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and 7 heads with 10 crowns on its horns. And on each head was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have have had a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from before the creation of the world. And then John says, whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with a the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you now just so desirous to be fed, to be encouraged, to be corrected, to be given a counsel for how to live our lives, how to see your world in a way that is, that is truthful, that is life-giving, Father, that is peace enabling, especially during this time, Lord. We, we think of all the unrest in our country, Lord, and we, we beg that you would, would show us life and light in the midst of death and darkness. Oh, Lord God, we, we need a word from you more than ever. Father, we, we just think of the, the, the sorrows that we are facing, the uncertainties, Father. We think of, uh, of a pandemic. We think of pandemonium. Father, we think of uh, police brutality. Father, we think of um, so many who are hurting right now, who are jobless. And we ask you, please give us this day, this morning, a word of hope. Father, please, may the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, most of us who follow the news, uh, who pay attention to the, the challenges that face our nation and our world, um, when it's, it comes, we come to a point when we followed uh, these challenges, these issues long enough, and when we studied them enough, that we, we come to see how incredibly difficult, how deep-seated, how entrenched these issues are. And not just deep-seated and entrenched, but even how, are you ready for this? How sinister it all seems. Why, why can't we beat these issues. Why can't we make progress? Why does it seem that these things just simply don't change? I can remember we, we just moved into a new house this past, uh, this past August, and we, we wanted to remove several trees uh, in the yard. And, and typical, very typical of me, I, I, I grossly underestimated the time it would take to get the job done because, because I forgot something about trees. See, trees have these things called roots. And uh, uh, you know, roots take time, they're, they actually go into the ground, they're deep, and when you go to actually remove a tree, <laughs> you have to work with the roots, at least to some extent. And so it's in the same way, the ills that plague our society today, greed, the breakdown of community, mass incarceration, abortion, poor education, sexism, racism, class divide, these things have deep roots so that, again, they seem so entrenched, that, that so much so that it feels sinister, almost like, almost like a conspiracy, like there's someone or something behind it all. And, of course, Revelation says, well, the reason that it feels so sinister is that it is sinister. Behind these systemic evils says revelation is a darkness a darkness which revelation symbolizes as a dragon as a serpent a, a an enemy who wants nothing more than disorder and death by means of deception And he can, and he regularly does hijack, as we've said, he hijacks our cultural institutions of government and media. Let's take a look at this. Now, at the end of Revelation 12, in the last verse, that is verse 17, we read this. It says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, namely those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. And the rest of her offspring, that's the church, that's you and me. That's, the, that's, the, that's sort of the, the, uh, the rest of the church throughout the time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. So what, what, what John is about to describe in, in, in chapter 13 is exactly how the, the dragon goes about waging war against the church of Jesus Christ. So again, the, the dragon, though defeated, goes off to make war against, quote, the rest of her offspring, the rest of the woman's offspring, that is, the people of God, again, the, those who seek to be a source of light and life at great cost to themselves. And chapter 13 tells us, he tell, tell, tells us how the dragon wages war. So let's jump in. He wages war first in the midst of pandemonium, in the midst of of pandemonium, in the midst of chaos and disorder. Look at the first part of verse 1. It says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, as discussed several weeks ago in the Old Testament, the sea is a symbol of chaos, of forces beyond human control. Forces that are usually, one, unfeeling, that is impersonal, cold, indifferent, apathetic. Forces that are, one, unfeeling, and two, foreign. Now think about that. Can you think of, at the moment, anything, any forces at play in our world, in our nation, that are foreign, that are new, that are hostile, that are unfeeling? See, regularly in the Old Testament, the C stands for social, political, and economic, and even public health disorder. We think of famine. We think of plague. Plague. The sea is a way of capturing power forces in our world that are well beyond human control control, that introduce chaos and pandemonium. Now, does that not describe our world and our nation at present? We are in the midst. We are at sea. So the dragon stood at the shore of the sea. He is waiting. In fact, you could translate verse 1. And the dragon stationed itself on the shore, or literally on the sand of the sea. It's as though the dragon is sitting there waiting for chaos to erupt. He's waiting to exploit a situation in which humanity is unexpectedly confronted by forces beyond its control. I don't know about you or me, but we, we often go about our day individually and collectively thinking that we have a tremendous amount of control. And then suddenly life takes an unexpected turn. I can remember just a few months ago, Sarah and I looking at, our, looking at our, uh, our financial situation, looking at how well the market was doing and thinking, wow, we're just doing so well. We have so much control over our financial future. Look at this, you know, look, look at us go. And within literally weeks of that, as Proverbs says, uh, um, that, you know, he says, cast but a glance at riches for it will soon sprout a wing's uh, like an eagle, and, and fly off, uh, and fly away. And that's exactly what's happened, isn't it? So the dragon here is per- portrayed as one who wages war first, first in the midst of pandemonium, in the midst of chaos. So he, does, that's, so he wages war in the midst of pandemonium, but second, he uses, listen to this, he uses the promise of political power. Look at the second half of verse 1. We read, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns. Now, throughout the Old Testament, and especially in Daniel, political power is portrayed as a wild animal. Here, the term beast, the English language is usually used use the word beast. In Greek, it refers to any animal that isn't domesticated. Does that make sense? You have your domesticated animals like livestock and beasts of burden, but then you have a category of animals that simply can never be domesticated. They are wild animals. And most importantly, this beast has ten horns and seven heads. Now, in the symbolism of the Old Testament, a horn symbolizes power, while a head more often symbolizes position. So horn is just the, the idea of just strength, brute force. Head symbolizes the idea of having a position, having a role. It has some sort of a f- official designation. And of course, the notion of crowns is the idea of, of, of a legitimacy. So there's power, there's position, and the crowns are supposedly this idea that this beast claims to have a legitimacy to it. So then the numbers 7 and 10 refer to the idea of completeness. So this beast is claiming, or pretending, if you will, to have a full power, fullness of power, completeness of power. Today we would use the language absolute power. A power that is final. A power that is forever. A power that is able to fix anything. A power that answers to no one. The rest of the verse makes this clear. We read, and on each head was a blasphemous name. That is to say, the beast is making claims that are godlike. See, in the midst of the pandemonium, in the midst of forces beyond human control that are foreign and unfeeling, this beast is representing political power that promises to be able, like God, to save humanity from the chaos, to save us from the pandemonium. Again, I hope this is you can take what Revelation is saying and just map it right on to the events of our day today. It promises, this political power promises to bring peace in the midst of the pandemonium. In John's day, of course, this was the power of Rome promising what it spoke of as the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace, this notion that Rome's authority wasn't to be questioned because they were all about bringing prosperity Bringing peace, bringing flourishing. And how dare you question? How dare you question the Roman emperor? Who is he's he's for your good. In fact, throughout a lot of the propaganda that you see in in the Roman Empire is the portrayal of the emperor as a father. Rome is a household. It is a family, and and uh, the, the emperor is a father, a loving father who cares for you. How could you ever reject? How could you ever say no? to your father. To say no to a father would be, would be rebellion. It would be unthinkable. But for all the pretense of power and for its promise of peace, how does John portray this sort of political power? As a beast, right? As a wild beast, as a predator, listen to this, as a predator that can never be made into a pet. Well, like, like most of you, as of the Clark family, uh, before the pandemic broke out here, we would go to the St. Louis Zoo, and and you, we see these wild animals, and so often as a family we go, aww. right, There's a sense of it's so cute. I, I I just wish I could jump in there and cuddle up next to it, right, and maybe play a game of fetch or hide and seek or something like that. And of course, if we actually did that. We, there would be a seeking and there would be a hiding, right? It would, it would be seeking us and we would do everything we can to hide from it. Because, why? Because it's a wild beast. But you know what? This is so often, especially today, this is so often how we view political power. Ah, oh, it's cute. We can domesticate it. We can control it. It's this thing that we look to for answers and solutions. We'll talk more about that. Not only does John portray this political power as predatorial, predatory, beyond our control. Not only does it portray it in a way that, that communicates that this power will actually cause more harm in the end than good. He also portrays it as no different from previous political power. Look at verse two. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had the feet of those of a bear, and a mouth like, like that of a lion. Well, what in the world is he saying? Well, in Daniel 7, in the Old Testament, we see a vision of four beasts. Listen to this. Just one like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard, and a fourth that has this, this sort of a terrifying mutant. Now listen, these, these beasts in Daniel 7 described present day, or the, the present day to Daniel, present day and future political powers powers, or kingdoms, that by John's day, listen to this, had, for the most part, come and gone. So this is a way of, of, for John to reference previous kingdoms, like the, 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 the empire, say, of Alexander the Great, right? The, very, the Persian, the Greek empires, and he's saying, look, this power that's, that's at play, this, this predatorial power that's promising peace in the midst of all of this pandemonium, Guess what? It's no different than the powers that have come and gone. See, John wants us to understand something very clearly. Political powers come and go, but they mostly go. And this political power is no different. John is saying, meet the new beast, same as the old beast. Political power, as John portrays it, pretends to have ultimate power. And it promises peace in the midst of all the chaos. But in truth, it is predatorial, and it's no different than its predecessors. This is precisely the kind of political power that the dragon hijacks. It loves any form of political power that claims to be absolute, that claims to be able to solve and and minister to and care for and bring peace in the midst of the chaos, and that's exactly what happens at the end of verse 2. Look there, it says, the dragon gave the beast its power and his throne and great authority. Do you get it? Do you see what's going on? So the, how, let's recap here. The dragon wages war, how? One, in the midst of pandemonium. Two, using the promise of political power, a power that pretends to be complete, that pretends to be peerless or unparalleled, we might say a power that pretends to be absolute and promises salvation. You don't have any need for God. You don't have any need for the lamb, the one on the throne. It's taken care of right here in Big Brother. It's taken care of here in an emperor who loves you. It's taken care of in a state, a president that feels your pain, do you see? Do you see how this is? How this is? How, how this is? This kind of political power is so readily co-opted by uh, by the evil one. Now, this is what, now this this final point that I've made here so far that that this that John is portraying in verse two that that this that political power is is just like previous political power. This is a, actually an extremely important point. There's no new kind of po- political power. Meet the new beast, same as the old beast. And, and then here's the thing, though. I don't think most of us Americans really believe that. And I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a moment here. But let me just first, very briefly, highlight some further attributes and actions of the beast. I'm going to go along here and further along these verses. First, It is this, be, um, this beast is, is, is first seemingly permanent. It's unparalleled. In power. It seems to almost to have power over death. Look at verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have seemed to have a fatal wound. But the wound had been healed. Do you see there seems to be this almost Christ-like or messianic complex to government? It seems stronger than death. You try to kill it, but it just comes back all the stronger. It seems to have this power that promises even somehow an escape from death. It promises to be the solution to to all of our ills. In fact, just recently, in um, fact, just this past Thursday, uh, a pastor, a, a pastor in a, a, a south side a, a church in um, the south the south side of Chicago. Uh, he's been there for a number of years. Uh, he his church resides in an area that is that at least at at one time was uh, had had probably the highest homicide rate in america his name is cory brooks and again this past thursday he published an article that i thought was so well done he says this he says politicians in illinois and across the country have fanned the flames of anger over the past several years their policies and worldview listen to this emphasize government as the solution to all problems except paradoxically when we need police. Wow. So here is an Afro-American pastor in the heart of one of the most, most troubled neighborhoods in southern Chicago, saying, you know what? Government pretends to be the solution to all of our problems, and it just isn't. He goes on to say, quote, the tragic killing of George Floyd reminds us that we need better training and screening for police officers. Now listen to what he says next but the vast majority of the law enforcement agents in our nation advance racial equality and help black Americans participate in the American dream. Now, listen, you you don't have to agree with that, but when a black pastor who has been ministering in the heart of a very difficult situation for years now, doing so with, with some very significant success, says something like that, Says calls us away from looking to government to be the, the solution to all of our problems, I mean, it should give us pause, serious pause. So this beast claims to be unparalleled in power, to be the solution to all of our problems. Second, it's, it's pursued. It's pursued and praised. Think about it. If the beast really is the answer to all of our problems, if it really does have an unparalleled power, It is to be pursued and even praised. Look at verses 3 and 4. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed or pursued the beast. Verse 4, people worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Now this is key gang. for so many people today, whether they're progressive politically or conservative politically the right use of political power is seen as the key to human flourishing. That's why we get so irate. That's why we're so polarized. That's why we're so animated. That's why we unfriend people who disagree with us because they don't understand how to use political power rightly. They don't understand what's at stake, that everything that we do, it all revolves our future as Americans is all about who's in, who's in, who's in the office who's in the Oval Office. It's all about what political programs we have or don't have. It's about how big or how small government should be. It's all about the government and the right use of government. And boy, things couldn't be more different. In fact, it's exactly backwards. People think that the right use of political power will be will lead to human flourishing. In fact, it's only when humanity flourishes that there will be the right use of political power. In other words, it's only when you and I get our lives in control, and it's only when you and I come together and become the kind of humans that God has called us to be by being active in our churches, by being active in our communities. It's only when we as people... Im- Prove that there will be the right use of political power. We look to political power, we wrongly, wrongly look to political power to heal our injustices, to protect our wealth, even our health, and we're outraged when it won't or when it can't. We're all guilty of this. So the beast is, he's, supposedly has this unparalleled power, therefore he's pursued and even praised. And then he's permitted to promote itself. This beast is permitted to profane God's name and to persecute his people. Look at verses five through seven. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words, to brag about itself and blasphemies, and it was given power to exercise its authority for 42 months. So that is an incomplete amount of time. It opened, it, it opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander its name and, to, and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given, given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Do you see that? The promotion of self, the profaning of God's name, and the persecuting of his people. And finally, this beast is praised by all peoples except the people of God. In the second half of verse 7, the beast's power proliferates, spreading throughout the world, we read, and it was given authority over every tribe and people, language, and nation. With what result? What was the outcome? Verse 8 tells us, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Gang, listen to this. God's people are alone in not bowing down to absolute political power. And, says John, we will pay a price, just as our Lord Jesus, just as the Lamb did. Why are we alone in not bowing down? Only, think about this, why does it say that we we do not bow down? Only, only because our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And who wrote them there? Not me, not you. There is no reason, there is no merit in and of ourselves why we have been included, why we have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, why we do not follow the beast and worship the dragon. But again, we're going to pray a price for it. Verses 9 and 10 reveal that. John speaks plainly of the passion, the suffering of God's people, and the patient endurance it requires. He calls us to listen. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then he says, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. He's saying, look, Christians are going to go down. God's people are going, be, are going to be persecuted. There will be opposition. When we don't follow along, we will be excluded. Get ready. And then John concludes this section by saying, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So how how does the dragon wage war? He wages war first in the midst of pandemonium, second, using the false promises of political power, a power that pretends to be pureless, to be complete, to be absolute, promising peace, and yet in truth, in truth is predatorial. And just like any previous political power and that's what i want to close with i want to ask this question is all political power really the same i mean come on it's easy to see how roman emperors like nero were beasts it's easy to see how nazi germany or stalin's russia or communist china how there's there's these these are portrayed as totalitarian regimes that are truly predatorial that at the end of the day have do not bring life in any way shape or form but are actually vehicles of death. While, while I was living in Puerto Rico, I, 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 we hadn't been there more than a few months, and I was at a, walked in, I was with a friend, and we walked into a, a, a cigar bar. The name of the bar was called Abanacuba, Cuba. And it was a Cuban cigar bar. And uh, there are actually a number of Cubans living in Puerto Rico. And when we walked in, now understand Puerto Ricans are very festive people. But this bar was out of control. Someone threw a drink in our hands, a cigar in our hands, was partying, and we, we, we asked, what is going on? Well, guess what happened? That was the very day that Fidel Castro had died. And Castro had, mur- I mean, these, these were Puerto Rican, and they inhabited Puerto Rico, but they were actually Cuban of Cuban descent. And they had friends, family who had been murdered by Castro. They had businesses that were completely lost, confiscated by Castro. And you can imagine in their celebration, you can see why someone like Castro would be regarded as a beast. But come on, all that's true, but what about modern liberal democracy? I mean, aren't we the answer to those problems? Aren't we the opposite? Isn't democracy the opposite of communism in some way, shape, or form? Aren't, aren't we, or isn't this the better way? Isn't this the solution? Well, listen, gang. At the heart of Western liberalism, and when I mean liberalism there, I'm not talking about liberal versus Democrat, or liberal versus Republican. I mean liberal in the sense that both Republican and Democrat are liberal insofar as they, the, the, the notion of liberal means the idea of Freedom. It's about the exaltation of personal choice. To the extent that our government is about the worship of personal choice, it is an agent of death. How do you think a civilization, listen to this, how do you think a civilization, a culture will do, how do you think it will advance if it's all about the liberation of self. To be free, it's all about being free to be me. Alexis de Tocqueville was a a French uh, political theorist, if you will, living in the 1830s. And listen to this, listen to his description, his fear for America. He, quote, I think that the species of oppression by which democratic nations are menaced is unlike anything which ever before existed in the world. He's saying, look, there is a form of oppression in democracy, but it's different. So is is, is democracy just as oppressive? Can it be just as oppressive as any other sort of regime? Yes, but the nature of its oppression is different, he says, from anything that's ever existed before. And then he says, I am trying myself, I am trying myself to choose an, ex, an expression which will accurately convey the whole of the idea I have formed of it, but in vain. So he's, he's wrestling to say, what, what is the oppression that a democracy will, will create? And this is, this is what he says. Listen to this. The first thing that strikes the observation is an, an innumerable multitude of men, all equal, and alike, incessantly endeavoring to procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut their lives. Isn't that amazing? What a vision of the oppression that he talks about. It's just a bunch of supposedly equal people living for themselves, all they're doing is the pursuing their petty and paltry pleasures. And then he says, above this race of men who all do nothing but pursue their own pleasures, above this race of men stands an immense parental power, which takes upon itself alone to secure their gratifications and to watch over their fate. He's talking about the the, the government. He's talking about an ever-increasing government. That, That governmental power, he says, is, quote, absolute, minute, regular, provident, and mild it would be like the authority of a parent if like that authority its object was to prepare men for manhood but it seeks on the contrary to keep them in perpetual childhood and that is an astonishing picture isn't it of a culture of a world in which you and i live in a way that is truly scary it's a world in which we are we are regularly we are constantly being sort of be, be, being separated, excluded, individualized, left alone to pursue our petty pleasures only to be governed by this massive parental power who has no interest in any of us growing up. That is the tyranny of liberal democracy. It's the tyranny of liberal democracy. All you got to do is, if you've ever watched the animated film uh, called WALL-E, just watch the first 10 minutes. It's this brilliant depiction of, of, of where liberal democracy will take us. Uh, just a people who are governed, uh, basically little children, who are governed by an all-encompassing uh, all, um, state. Let me close with this. Let me, just, let me give a few applications. First, you may come away from a, a sermon like this and think, well, what do I do about all this? Well, listen, you do what Jesus did. You find persons and you pour yourself into them. That's what Jesus did to 12 men, and he poured his life into them. You disciple people. You want to make a difference. You want to defy the dragon. You find other persons. You find other Christians or non Christians, and you love them. You champion them. You encourage them. You mentor them. You be the, the best single, the best spouse, the best parent, the best neighbor you can be. You engage in hospitality hospitality and hospitality. You're all about connecting, creating healthy community. You put away your technology. And then after that, you put away more of your technology. And then after that, you put away your technology for longer. And finally, you pray. You pray and you pray. You pray individually and you pray as a church. Let me conclude with this. Uh, it was in April of 1865 that, the, that Frederick Douglass, uh, who was an escaped slave and he was turned an abolitionist, he spoke at a Boston gathering of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. And, he, and as the, war was coming, the Civil War was coming to an end, everyone was asking the question, what are we going to do, so to speak, with these, these former slaves? And he says this, he says, quote, everybody has asked the question, what should we do with the Negro? And of course, in that, in that time, from the 1860s to the 1980s or so, the term "negro" was used very acceptingly of, 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 by black leaders. What should we do with the Negro? I have many he, he answers the question. I have had but one answer from the beginning. Are you ready for this? So get me make sure you understand. The question is, what should the, what should the North? and the government, and the military, what should we do with these slaves? How do we help them? How do we care for them? What do we do with them? And he says, I have had but one answer from the beginning. Are you ready for his answer? Do nothing with us. Leave us alone. Isn't that amazing? He says, your doing, listen to this, he says, your doing with us has already played the mischief with us. He's don't don't think that by your government and your grand solutions, that you're gonna do something, that you're gonna bring justice to us, that you're gonna help us. Please just leave us alone. And he repeats, quote, do nothing with us. If the apples will not remain on the tree of their own strength, if they are worm-eaten at the core, if they are early ripe and disposed to fall, let them fall. And if the Negro cannot stand on his own legs, let him fall also. All I ask is give him a chance to stand on his own legs." What a statement by Frederick Dreyfus, an escaped slave, an abolitionist. Listen, the solution, the path to peace, is not through politics. Yes, politics has a point, it has its place. I said that at the very beginning it is God-ordained, it is, it is an institution of God, it has its place, but so easily it is hijacked by the campaign of deception by an, of an evil one who wants us to look to everyone and everything except God for our salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how powerful this, this book is, how truly amazing its imagery. Lord, I pray that you would ingrain it upon our hearts in such a beautiful way. Father, our hearts, Lord, our hearts yearn for your justice. Our hearts yearn for, for the justice of the Lamb. Our hearts yearn for the peace, the reconciliation of the Lamb of whose blood is, has been shed to bring reconciliation and redemption to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. We long for the lamb to reign in our hearts, to reign in our communities, to reign in our government, in the halls of office, in the halls of power. Oh, would the lamb and his love be known? Would it be shared? Would it be celebrated? Oh, Lord God, I pray the Good Shepherd would be that woman, that woman clothed in the light, that woman who in great pain is giving life to the world, is giving life. Uh, Father, oh God, I pray that Jesus himself would reign over the nations, that he would reign over our hearts, he would reign in our communities, he would reign in, our, in, our, in law enforcement, he would reign in our communities uh, of, of all kinds, Lord, of all peoples, of all classes. Lord God, please, we, we beg you, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.